us in a word of prayer, and uh, and we'll dive in. So, Brad, you want to actually open us in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, Lord, just the opportunity to meet together and to uh, have your word uh, both nourish and uh, strengthen our souls. And as we just look at our lives as men and all the areas of our life of responsibility and ministry, we just pray that we would look at it with a focus upon your word and faithfulness. And pray this morning be uh, a way that we can be strengthened in that, be encouraged in that, be challenged in that. Just pray for Dusty this morning. Pray for your spirit to, to give us understanding and for conviction and for encouragement. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here this morning, bright and early. Um, well, dark and early. Uh, it's, a, it's always a blessing to, to see you come out to hear the Word of God. So if, you, if you've been with us and you know, if you're new, then we've been talking about really what does it mean to be a godly leader? How can we be a godly man and lead our, our homes better? Um, be leaders in the workplace and leaders in general. And so... Last time, we, we talked about a commitment to Bible intake. Um, I call it that because we talked about the many ways that we ought to be engaged with the Scriptures. And so if, I won't be going back through all of that, but we do have it recorded. If you missed it, I can send you the link and you can listen to really all the recordings that we have so far. But this morning, I want to talk about a commitment to prayer. A commitment to prayer. And let's begin just by thinking about a question. What does it mean to be a godly man? What does it mean to be a godly man? What does it mean to be godly? When we talk about godliness and those terms, but do you ever break that down in your mind to think about what, is, what does it mean? When we think of someone as being godly, what are we saying about that person? Really, it's, it's, it's pretty simple when you define it. Godliness really just means that we become like God in our character. We begin to think the way God thinks, we begin to live the way God lives, speak the way that He would have us speak. To be godly is to be like God. And if we're to be godly men, then there are some fundamental disciplines that have to be in place for us um, to help us grow in that. Obviously, the Scriptures are a huge part of that, but prayer is equally important. And these are patterns that need to be in our daily lives to the point that they become like natural reflexes. I don't know if you've ever done, maybe if you had a manual labor type job or played video games as a kid or, or whatever, or played sports, where you have muscle memory build up over time, where, you're, where at first it's, it feels very mechanical and then you have to think about everything you're doing, but eventually your hands just do it, your body just does it, um, and without you even thinking. In the same way, our spiritual disciplines and the way we live and think in a godly manner need to become like natural reflexes, where the, the more we mature and grow in Christ, the faster we respond in a way that God would respond, the faster we go to the Scriptures, the faster the Scriptures come to mind, the faster we begin to pray, and so on and so forth. So today as we begin looking at the discipline of prayer, I want to come at this in a, a little bit of a unique way. And I want to focus in the beginning specifically upon Christ and what we learn from Jesus in the instructions and, and in the example that He gives for prayer. And this really encouraged my own heart <clears throat> in walking through this. I pray that it will for you as well. And so let's begin by looking at Jesus' instruction on prayer and turn to Matthew chapter 6, which is really the classic text on this issue as we look at what we call the Lord's Prayer and the verses leading up to that. 
So let's, let's read Matthew 6. I'm going to begin in verse 5 and read down through verse 13. Matthew 6, 5 says, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <clears throat> now, let's begin with, I, I want to hear some from you as we read through that, and you can begin reading through it again if you'd like to. Really, starting in verse 5 and the instructions that he gives there and then the actual prayer that he prays. I just want us to discuss that and make some observations. What are some things that stand out to you? Let's begin with the instruction that he gives before the prayer. What were some, some things that stood out to you in those instructions about prayer that Christ gave there? Get alone. Be alone. Yeah, get alone with the Lord. So there's the, the emphasis on private prayer and a relationship with, with God that is intimate one-on-one. It's not for show. Have the right motivation. Right motivation when you pray. Yeah. What are some of the wrong motivations he brings up? Not for show. Yeah, so people will think about you in a certain way. What does he say about that? I've always, I've always liked that, that picture that he gives there. What does he mean by they have received their reward in full? What does he mean? It's attention they want, it's attention they get. They get the praise of men, but God yeah. doesn't hear them. You get not, they get nothing of an eternal reward, a spiritual word from the Lord. The only reward they get in their praying is that men think highly of them. That's as far as it goes. What else? What are some other observations about his instruction? Do not use meaningless repetition. Mm-hmm. All right, the, the, the length of our prayer and the repetition of, of phrases is not what pleases the Lord. It's not what gets results. It's, and he, he says, the Lord already knows what you need before you come to Him. And so we're not, we're not earning anything from God by how, how well we pray, quote-unquote, or by a flowery language or repetitive language. What about the prayer itself? What are some things that stand out to you as you look at the Lord's prayer, as we call it? What are some specific things that stand out to you? I think one of the big things, though, is that he recognized in 6 that God is present. He's not just... I think we don't think about that when we sit in. God is with us. Mm -hmm. Even in our temptation, but He's also with us when we're praying. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your Father who sees you sees what is done in secret will reward you. That we're talking about. We're in verse six. And, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
there's a reverence when he comes to the Lord. Hmm. Uh, there's the, the recognition that he is present, but it's the, the understanding that when we come to the Lord, we're coming to him as our Father, but there is a holy reverence when we come to him. Hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it, um, it, it takes everything that we had as our purposes and shuts them out the window. And it's about God's purposes being lived out. Mm -hmm. and, and refocuses yes, refocuses where we're supposed to be and, and what our direction is supposed to be. Yeah. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Mm -hmm. verse, verse 8 says that the Father knows what you need before you ask him, so that should humble, humble her. Mm -hmm. not, yeah. not to try to impress anybody. Yeah. That knows our intention. Yeah. Heart. Exactly. Along with being hallowed, he's also in heaven. He's separate from us. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're here on earth, and he's up there. So we're still, it's in a sense, we're praying up too. So we're in a submission state. Yeah. Yeah, an attitude of submission towards him when we pray. Absolutely. It's a prayer for a forgiving heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that he'd help us to be able to forgive. And an attitude of dependence, you know, mm -hmm. um, the, the only supplication is for what we need for any given day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, give us this day our daily bread. Those are all observations that, that I wrote down as well. There's this, this focus upon God as He begins, right? And... And he turns his attention to who God is, and he begins to worship God. And as, as we've mentioned, that, that puts him in a place of submission to the Father. And remember, this is Jesus praying, the second person of the Trinity. So it's even more instructive for us that, that, that he is referring to God in this way. He shows reverence and honor for God, and he doesn't seek to conform God to his will, right? But he asks that God would conform him to God's will. And then he does make requests, as we've mentioned. He makes requests for daily provision. He asks for the forgiveness of, of his own sins and then for the ability to forgive others and to be kept from temptation um, from sin. And so he makes requests, but the requests come after focusing his attention on the Lord and the, the will of God being, uh, being done in his life and on the earth. And so as we think about that, those are all good observations, but now let's make some observations of how this should affect our prayer life, how it should change the way that we think about prayer and approach prayer. And I've written out just a couple of, of key things, there could be many more, but first of all, it should cause us to approach God with two things in mind about God, His transcendence and His imminence. His transcendence and His eminence. We'll walk through those together. But when we pray, we should approach God with a healthy understanding of both of these realities about God. He is transcendent and He is eminent. Let's talk a little bit about transcendence. We see this in the way Jesus says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. God is the most exalted being in the universe. And we will never fully wrap our minds around God. We'll never fully understand Him. He does reveal Himself to us so that we can know Him in growing measure. But there are aspects of God that we can never imitate. Uh, there are things about Him that are unique. 
Think about it this way. There are angels before the throne of God who are holy angels, meaning they've never sinned. They're spotless in their character. Not one time have they sinned against God. And yet when they are face to face with God, how do they describe Him? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And these are sinless beings, and yet they look on Him and they say there's something about Him that is so far beyond us. He is holy, holy, holy. That is, that is a reference to not only His sinful, sinless perfection as God, but the fact that He is other. There is, there is something about God that is unique. He is the only God, the eternal God, and there is no one like Him. And so that, so that should cause us to approach God with reverence, with worship, with awe, with thoughtfulness, to thinking about the way we pray and the words we use. Not, not to impress God, but to accurately reflect who God is, right? And it should be clear our theology of the transcendence of God. Our prayers shouldn't be flippant. It should never be accusatory or irreverent. I've heard people say, you know, just, just tell God what you think about things because He can handle it. It's like, no, well, he can handle it. He can, he can handle you. He can, um, but, but no, that's, that is not an accurate picture of God. That's not what the psalmists are doing either when the psalmists begin to talk about the issues in their lives. They're not accusing God. They're calling out to God for help and for deliverance, but they're not accusing God as if he's been wrong in his actions towards them. We shouldn't be irreverent. You know, there is this... Uh, this new Bible, I don't hate to call it a translation, it's a Bible, I don't know what they're calling it, but they've, they've done this, this culturally relevant, quote-unquote, new translation of the Bible for teenagers of our day. And it's just an absolute slap in the face to the holiness and transcendence of God. It's like Genesis 1-1 begins, like, Big G said to little G, let's, let's make, you know, let, let's let there be light. Or like it, It's just this total... Just buffoonery is what it is. That's what Charlie would call it. Buffo- Charlie Yates would call it buffoonery. It's, it is an absolute, <clears throat> absolutely irreverent act. It misses the transcendence of God. So there should be this attitude that we take on of, of, of I'm approaching a holy being that I can never fully understand. Really, and I'm going into the presence of one whom I have no business in and of myself going into his presence. There should be that in the forefront of our minds. But at the same time, amazingly, God is imminent. His imminence is the fact that He is near to us. And that's only true because He's chosen to come near to us. In His transcendence, He, he could remain far off and be just fine to do that. Yet in His imminence, He has chosen to reveal Himself to come near to us and to bring us near to Him. This is why when the angels announce the birth of Christ in Luke 2, what name of God do they give to Him? He is Emmanuel, God with us. God has chosen to be, make Himself known. Obviously, God's been near to us since He created us. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. But the most profound example of His eminence, of course, is the incarnation. That He went as far as taking to Himself in the person of Christ, obviously the second person of the Trinity, taking to himself a human body and a human nature so that he can relate to us now in a unique way. He can sympathize with our weaknesses in a unique way so that we can know him face to face forever. 
I don't know if you've, this isn't, this is a little bit off topic, but I don't know if you've ever really thought about the implications of the fact that Jesus not only had a human body during the, the, his earthly ministry and earthly life, but he will forever have a body. It's a glorified body, but he will always have a body. And we will always be able to relate to him in a personal way. Think about that. For all eternity, he will maintain a human body so that we can have a face-to-face intimate relationship with him. So there is this, this, these two dueling truths about God. He is, he is alien in the sense of he's other. There's a, there's, he's transcendent. He, there, there's things about him that just blow our minds. The Trinity blows our minds. Or we can explain the Trinity God is, is one and yet exists eternally in three persons. I can explain that in English, but our minds just blow up when we try to fully grasp that. He's eternal. He has no beginning, no end. I can tell you that. I believe that. I affirm that. But my mind cannot grasp that kind of a being. And, and, and that's on purpose. Our brains should sweat when we think about God. And yet at the same time, He's near to us. He's here with us even now. Think about that. He's, he's always near to us. Even when in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, he says, as you do these things, I'm with you. Always to the end of the age. I mean, there's, there are these dueling realities. So how, do we, how can we possibly do that? How can we approach God and have a relationship with God in prayer and maintain an attitude of submission to Him as the transcendent one and a reverence and holiness that's due Him and yet come to Him as He calls us to, as a, as a son to a father. The Bible even says that God is our friend, that it's appropriate to think of God as our friend. So how can we approach God as a friend, and yet as the transcendent, holy, eternal one of the universe? Well, there is no human illustration that can fully capture this. So, so every, any illustration I use will, will have an ending point. Of, of relevance, but I did think of one example in my own life that I think may help us, and you have, I'm sure you have something like this to relate yourself, but when I served at Countryside as the associate pastor, I had a unique relationship with Pastor Tom. He was my boss, he was my mentor, he's my pastor, and he was my friend all at the same time. Some of you may have a similar relationship with, with someone else in your life, where there are, there are all these roles that connect us, but they're different, and they require different kinds of, of interaction when, when someone's your boss rather than when someone's your friend. And so each of those roles interconnected us and affected every interaction that we had. It meant that at times we could joke and we could laugh together, while at other times it meant that he was giving me counsel and I was listening respectfully. And it meant at other times that he was correcting me to show me things ways I could do things better. And I was responsive to those. Sometimes he was giving me things that I was to do. We interacted with one another in public settings and in private settings and formal settings and informal settings. But no matter how we interacted or when we interacted, there was never a time that that all four of those realities were not true. He was my boss, mentor, pastor, and friend. And so even in our joking, there there was a a respect. There's a line. I don't, I don't joke with him in the way that I might joke with, with someone who's just my friend and not my boss and my mentor. Um, but at the same time, even when he was functioning as my boss, there was a friendship aspect to that. So I think you understand the idea. When we think about who God is and the character of God, it is possible to have this tension in mind and to have a real relationship with God 
in which we give Him the appropriate amount of respect that He is due, while still coming, as the Scripture says, with confidence before His throne, as one whom we know He will accept because He sees us as His children. And this is the wonderful, unique relationship that we get to have with God in prayer. And it is what Jesus highlighted even in His prayer. He does begin with reverence, but what title does He give to God? Our Father. Which in and of itself has this intimacy. It's a a term of respect and intimacy all in one. And so that is the way we're to think of God when we pray to Him in private, in the closet, at your house, or whenever you pray and you lead a group or pray for a meal, there should be this this balancing effect of the transcendence of God and yet the eminence of God that He has made possible for us through His own Son. Now, it should also cause us to bring God our requests. So it should not only cause us to, to balance the transcendence of God and the eminence of God, but the prayer that Jesus prayed and the instruction that Jesus gave should cause us to bring our requests to God. Sometimes in, in our theological circles, I think people find it more, more natural to praise God and give adoration to God, but they struggle with understanding why we should bring our requests to God because God's perfectly sovereign. He's absolutely sovereign. If He knows everything, He knows my needs before I say them, He knows what I'm going to pray, is it really necessary to pray? I think that's, that's how the, the logic goes. But it's a faulty logic, an unbiblical logic, because Jesus tells us to do exactly the opposite of that. It's the same error that believers make in our circles if they fall into hyper-Calvinism on the side of evangelism, where if God's going to save who He's going to save, then why do I need to share the gospel? But notice that Jesus actually addresses this issue head-on in the text that we just read. In Matthew 6, beginning in in verse 7, And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. Why? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So Jesus affirms, yes, God knows what you're going to ask Him before you pray. That is true. But at the same time, when Jesus gives us the model prayer, what does He do? He asks God for things. He makes requests. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our transgressions. Lead us not into temptation. And so obviously Jesus has no problem with this tension in his mind that God, God knows everything and yet I should still pray to him and bring my request to him. This, this is not a problem in the mind of Christ. In fact, it's not a problem anywhere in the Scriptures. Listen to James, James 4, verses 1 to 3. It says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. That is, you, 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 don't, you don't ask God. You don't have this thing that you desire because you do not ask. And then if you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Still there, James calls us to ask of God and says that there are some cases where there may be a legitimate need or desire that God's chosen not to meet at that time because you haven't prayed. What about 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7? Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. 
This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. God knows everything you need. He knows everything you think before you even think it. And yet he says, come to me. Cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. This is what the Bible teaches us about our good and gracious God. So how does God's desire for us to pray connect to his sovereignty? Well, the answer is far simpler than you might imagine. In his sovereign power, God has determined not only the ends that he will accomplish, but the means by which he will accomplish them. And say it again. God has determined not only the ends, the actual actions or things, events that he will accomplish, but the means by which he will accomplish them, the way in which they'll be accomplished. That means that God did not desire for us to be mere robots that just go through the motions of life as each event happens and it just happens to us and we just we go through life that way and die. Instead, he desired a real relationship with us in which we're fully dependent upon him and in which it's natural for us to call upon God as our good and gracious Father and he will respond to those prayers. That's how God has chosen to accomplish his sovereign ends. Our prayers are part of His sovereign plan. No, we're not changing the mind of God. No, God does not have a plan and you pray and He goes with another plan. All of our prayers are wrapped up in God's grand scheme in His sovereign plan of how He chooses to accomplish His ends. But we are to pray and it is a real command of God and God really does want you to pray to the point that he made our prayers the means by which he accomplishes some of the things that he has planned for the world. So let me ask you a question. This one's for you just to think on. Do you believe that God really answers prayer? Do you believe that? And if you say yes, then I'd ask you a second question. Does your current prayer life reflect the fact that you believe that God really answers prayer. Both the frequency with which you pray and the way in which you pray. Because I think sometimes we answer yes to the general question, but then when we look at the practice of our lives, the, the, the infrequency of our prayers and the lack of fervency in our prayers reveal that perhaps we don't believe it as much as we think we do. I think so many times... In our Christian lives, an issue arises or there's a a need that we have. And our first response is to get on the phone and call a friend. It's to find a book to read on the topic. Uh, It's it's all these things. It's even asking others to pray for us while never having prayed ourselves. Right? And yet, if our theology is that, that God is sovereign and yet He uses the means of prayer and desires for us to pray then our first response, before we do anything else, ought to be personally to come to Him in prayer. And so I hope that's challenging it to you as it is to me. Now, we have not only Jesus' teaching on prayer, and obviously we could go in further depth on that, but I want to look now at Jesus' example of prayer. His example of prayer. If, if you're one who struggles in your mind with this tension between the sovereignty of God and the need for prayer then here, here's, an, here's something that really should just dismantle that struggle. Because if there's ever been a human being on the planet that legitimately didn't need to pray, is it not our Lord? I mean, was He not 
one with the Father? I mean, did he not perfectly know the Father and the Father perfectly know the Son? And yet Jesus prayed with a consistency and a fervency that would put all of our prayer lives to shame. It was a normal, regular part of his life. How dare we ever think that prayer is unnecessary or irrelevant when we have such a clear example of the importance of prayer in the life of Christ? Let me look at a couple of examples. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, just verses 12 and 13. Luke 6, 12. Luke writes, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named his apostles. On the night before he would choose uh, which would be the, the twelve apostles... He spent the entirety of the night in prayer to the Lord. There's a, there's a lot of instruction there for us of, of, of the importance of prayer. Obviously, when we have a decision to make, we bring it before the Lord. Again, this is, this is Jesus, the Son of God, and yet He comes and prays not just a, a short little prayer, God give me wisdom, but He prays through the entirety of the night before He chooses who the twelve would be. Turn to Matthew chapter 14. This one's convicting to me, especially. In Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22, the context here is Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's had a really, really full day of ministry on this day, a day of teaching, of miracles. People are following him, him, Him everywhere. He can't seem to get any privacy or even have time to eat Himself. And yet, after dismissing the crowd, this is verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was alone there. The reason I say that that's convicting to me is because after a long day of doing anything, let alone a long day of ministry, how is it that you want to spend your evening? Sleep, entertainment, chilling, just I want my mind to be blank. And yet Jesus says, I've had a full day of pouring in and pouring into others. I need to be alone with the Father. And so he walks up a mountain to pray by himself. This was a, these examples help us understand that this was a normal part of his life. This is just what he did. This is the way he was refreshed as he went and spent time with the Father you don't necessarily have to turn there, but there's another example in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And Peter comes and finds him. On the night before his crucifixion, what do we find him doing? He's praying. This was his normal pattern. This is... This is these are examples of private prayer where Jesus dedicated Himself to one-on-one, alone time, praying with the Lord. But we also have examples of Jesus in public prayer. And I've just chosen one for us to look at this morning. We could look at others. But there's one that sticks out in my mind 
that's sort of the crown jewel of prayers, and it's John 17. In John 17, we have what we call the high priestly prayer. And just to set the stage a little bit, this is right after the upper room discourse with the disciples, the Last Supper, the Passover meal. Jesus is giving them instructions. Judas leaves that night to go. He's going to betray him. Jesus knows his time is short, that the tomorrow is coming, and that, that's when he, he actually will be arrested in chapter 18 that, that night, or basically early morning of the next day, and the trials will begin, and he'll be crucified on Friday. So this is Thursday evening. He knows his time is ending in, during his earthly ministry with his disciples. And so in chapter 17, he prays for his disciples. And here's what he says. I'm going to read all of this prayer in chapter 17. And be listening because I want to do with this what we did with the Lord's Prayer. And I want to get some observations from you about how this should affect our prayers. But John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you have, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, and to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know, every, to know that everything you have given me is, is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have joy, have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, <clears throat> be with me where I am, 
so that they may see what my glory which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I've made them I've and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. <clears throat> so there's a there's a lot obviously to digest in that prayer, but picture the disciples there listening to Jesus as he prays this to the Father and listening on to what he says. What are some observations in this example of a prayer from Christ that stood out to you? For others. He prays for. Mm-hmm. He prays consistently for others. There, you mentioned it earlier. There's the you know Jesus is equal to God, but he even recognizes that you and I are are one. But yet his attitude is still submission to the Father, recognizing mm. this is God's authority to do this. Mm. Yeah. The repetitive thing I see is that he keeps saying that you gave them to me. Mm-hmm. This was your. This was your. Way. Yeah. Keeps reminding them they're, they're not of this world. They're just passing through. That's mm-hmm. a good reminder for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. They're not of this world, just as he was not. He keeps, he keeps only praying for things that affirm the work of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He keeps praying for things that this is what you were going to go do. This is what I went and did for you, as you commanded. Now hold it up. Affirm what you were doing before. Affirm what you're doing now. Just mm-hmm. keep yeah, it's sort of the fleshing out of your will be done on earth as, as is in heaven. He consistently prays the things that he knows are the will of God to be done. Yeah. And the strong desire for unity. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus and God are perfectly aligned. The Holy Spirit and it, we're his, so we should be perfectly aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I said it that he prayed for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Over and over and over again. It is it is a pretty special thought that we are included in this prayer because he begins specifically praying for the eleven um, that are left, but he says in verse twenty, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their work. That's that's us. That's all who believe the gospel, and that it's pretty uh, humbling that we'd be included in that prayer. You know, as as I looked at the prayer myself, uh, several of the things you mentioned popped out. A couple of others is Jesus's theology was evident in his prayer. Um, we he's not using he's he's not doing what he said not to do, which is using just repetitive flowery language to impress. It's just this is this. The relationship that he has with the Father and his thoughts about the Father just flow out naturally. And the same should be true in the way that we pray. There's a clear adoration for the Father. I, don't, I didn't count, but over and over again he uses the word Father. It's almost with every section he comes back. In verse 25 he ends with, Oh, righteous Father. He just continues to speak to him as Father. There's an obvious adoration for him 
There's the submission and commitment to the will of the Father being accomplished. There is this love for His people that is clear. There's a genuine love that He has for those that are His. He prays for their sanctification. And you notice He doesn't just pray for them, but He prays, God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God, they're, they're not of this world. Keep them. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I am asking you to be with them, protect them. As was mentioned, there's this desire for unity of the people together, and there's also this desire for unity of the people with the Father and the Son, and obviously the Spirit. And, and so it's just a, a beautiful example of, of how we should pray, of the kinds of things that ought to show up in our prayers. So let me just mention specifically some of the ways, four ways that, that these kinds of things ought to be reflected in our prayers. Number one, our theology should be evident in the way we pray. Um, a, a lot of us enjoy reading, enjoy reading theological books from systematic theology, talking theology, but when you pray, does that theology come out? And, and not in a forced sort of way to show people how the big words you've memorized, but... but just because it's how you think about God now, the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God, it ought to be clear that that guy really trusts in the Lord, believes these things to be true simply by the way he prays. Or is it just kind of a thank you for this day, for this food, and be with us, amen. Is, it, is that kind of the, the nature of your praying? Or is this recognition of God clear? <clears throat> so the character of God and how you think of God and who you know God to be ought to naturally flow out of your prayers. Part of that even is just speaking those things back to God, worshiping Him for being those things, um, as, as we've seen in other places. And then there is this, this theology of a desire for God's will to be done, a genuine love for other people. When you pray for others, is there a... Is there an aspect that's clear that you have a love for that person, that you desire God's best for that person, and that you're praying spiritual things for them? It's not wrong to pray for physical needs, but there are spiritual needs that are, that are more important and are those an aspect of our praying. That's actually the second issue I wanted to mention. Our prayers for others should focus on their spiritual needs. That's not to the exclusion of their physical needs. It's not wrong to pray for God's provision, obviously. It's not wrong to pray for someone's health if they're struggling. But always, even, even with praying for their physical needs, there should be this understanding that God intends whatever that trial is, whether it be financial or health or whatever, God intends for that physical thing to have spiritual impact in their life. And so this, this prayer of God sanctify them in the truth that should always be in our minds. And, and notice Jesus is praying this in front of them. And so I, I encourage you, even when, not just in your, the privacy of your home, but when someone says, will you pray for me? And you say, sure, let's pray. Pray for the physical need that they've asked you to pray for. And then pray for God to use that for their spiritual good. And you know what happens? It, it, it's, it's not that you're preaching and you're praying. We want to be, be careful that we're not preaching the sermon at, at the person while we're praying for them. But... As a natural outflow of the way you think about the situation, it can often encourage their heart to say, you know, yes, Lord, I've not been thinking that way. I've, I've been totally thinking about the physical, and I haven't even considered the spiritual. And so it, that praying ed- glorifies God, and it edifies that person. 
as you pray for them, true spiritual things, that their, not only their physical needs would be met, but that God would use it in their spiritual lives. Thirdly, we should pray for God's will to be done and trust that it will be. How can you be confident that God will answer your prayer affirmatively? Pray for the things that He's already said that He's doing in the world, right? Pray the things that He's already said are His desire. God, may your kingdom come through this. God, may you use this for the upbuilding of your church and your people. May you use this to bring glory to your name. How often does Jesus pray for that? God, glorify your name as I've glorified your name and glorify me with you, uh, which is appropriate for him to pray as, as God himself. There's this, as, as Jordan said, there's this praying for things that, that we can have confidence God wants to do because he said, this is what I'm doing in the world. And so pray for it. Pray that he would save your neighbor or, or your coworker or family member because while we don't have a promise that God's going to save certain individuals, we have a promise that God desires for the lost to come to salvation and that we can pray for that. We can trust the Lord's will to be done. And then fourthly, we should pray for God's people as a whole. Pray for the church. He, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's praying for His people. He's praying for the disciples and then for all who would come to be a part of the body of Christ through their preaching how often do you pray for the church, <clears throat> the leadership of the church, but individual people in the church? How, how, how regularly are your prayers other-focused? It's, uh, it's easy for us to be consumed with the, the needs and desires that we have in our own lives. And as we said earlier, it's not wrong to bring those to the Lord. It's biblical to bring those to the Lord. But how often is that the dominant part of our prayer life rather than focusing on others? Well, there's a, there's a whole, we could do months of study on the prayers of Jesus, but I thought that would be an interesting way to kind of lay a foundation for prayer, just to look at the consistency of his prayer life, his private prayer life, his public prayer life, uh, his teaching on prayer. And what I want to do now as we close here in just a moment is sort of back up and give you some general principles about prayer as, as we begin to think specifically about our lives and think biblically about our prayer lives just a few practical things to encourage you to make prayer a more regular part of your life and to, and to pray more biblically. Uh, there's just uh, kind of four things I want to mention. Number one, prayer is an assumed part of the Christian life. Biblically, prayer is an assumed part of the Christian life. We, we didn't hammer on this earlier, but we actually read it in Matthew 6. He begins several times. In Matthew 6, 5, he begins, when you pray. He begins in 6-7, and when you pray. And 6-9, pray then in this way. There, there is this assumption that Christians pray, that it's a normal, regular uh, part of life. Often when I'm talking with someone about the discipline of prayer, they, they struggle to, to determine how healthy their prayer life is. What, how do I know if, if I'm praying in, in the right way? Well, biblically... It helps me to break prayer into two categories. We see two different admonitions in Scripture when it comes to our prayer life. The first one is that prayer is to be continual. Prayer is to be continual. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Pray without ceasing. A lot of Christians are intimidated by that because they think he literally means quit your job and everything and, and pray without ceasing. What he means is that it should be, there should be a normal 
regular communication with the Lord throughout the day. That when you have a moment of downtime in your mind, there's, there's this communication going on, prayer to the Lord. When a coworker walks in and, and you can tell that they've had a bad day, you can say a prayer for them. If you see gospel opportunity coming, you say a prayer, God, give me strength and boldness and, and wisdom to share with this person. It, it, it's just, it's a normal thing. You're driving in your car and you're praying. It's, it, that is to pray without ceasing, that it's a regular, these are sort of quick, uh, often short prayers, but they're just, it's just what we do. It's just a continual part. It's normal. So even, for example, when you're driving down the road, you come upon a car wreck or ambulance comes screaming by, Pray. Pray for whatever that situation is and pray that God's will would be done in it and that He would not only be with the people in their physical need, but that He would use it for the gospel and the lives of the, of the paramedics and in the person who's been injured. So just a, it's a regular part of your life. So evaluate that aspect of prayer. Is prayer for you only a, a set-aside time or is, is prayer regular? But then there's the, the other side. This is number three. Prayer is to be intentional. So it's to be continual, but prayer is also to be intentional. We're going to come to this in Colossians uh, chapter 4, but in Colossians 4 verse 2, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 2 verse 42, where we have this summary that I read last Sunday of what the early church was doing in their regular church life, it says they were devoting themselves to a few things. The apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. They're devoting themselves to prayer. <clears throat> when I think of devoting myself to prayer, that's more of, uh, there are things that I'm biblically commanded to pray for. And I need to build into my regular life those times of retreat that we see Jesus doing, where He gets alone. There ought to be times where I'm devoting myself to prayer. That I'm setting this aside. It's not just the quick, short prayers. That those are good and regular should be part of my life and, and, and uh, with the Lord. But there ought to be a, a part, a portion of our day, or, or perhaps multiple portions of our day, that are set aside. And my focus during this time is to pray, and to pray well, and to pray about the things that God says I should pray about. <clears throat> you may not have ever really looked at this, but the, the Scriptures give us all kinds of things that we ought to be praying for. Praying for one another, praying for the, the glory of the Lord and the will of God to be done. Praying for government leaders, praying for the church, and different authorities in our lives. There, there, are, there are all these things that we're commanded to pray for, and yet if we analyze our prayers, I think even, even in my own life, I have to step back and look at this regularly because I sort of default back to just praying about very similar things. Uh, and never really getting to those other things that God has said we ought to pray for. And so the most natural way for this to happen for me is it's, it's part of my time in the morning with the Lord. There's time to study the Word, and there's time to pray. And there's that regular set-aside time to pray. And then that flows into a whole day, Lord willing, of this sort of continual prayer that it's normal to turn our minds to the Lord. And so let me just give you some practical ways as we apply those. This is number four, practical wisdom for cultivating a consistent prayer life. If you want to improve in this area, and this hasn't been as normal or regular part of your life as it should be, here are some, some things you can do that are pretty easy to, to help. Number one, prayer and biblical meditation go hand in hand. 
We talked a lot last time, if you were here, about meditating on the Scriptures. Meditation and prayer, really, they, they, they springboard off of one another. Meditating on the Scripture is digesting that Scripture and thinking through it, breaking it apart and applying it to your heart. And that ought to be mixed with praying through that text of, God, help that to be true of me. Help me to think in this way, in that way, whatever that text may be. If you're doing that, if you're meditating regularly on the Scriptures and mixing that with part of your application being asking God to do that, then you're going to be praying consistently throughout the day. Secondly, set a time and a place for intentional prayer. Have a spot. And that's your spot to read and your spot to pray. A spot that's, that's largely a place where you'll be un, uninterrupted, that's well lit. Um, there is no biblical po- posture for prayer. Hopefully you, you understand that. But in Jesus, in the example in John 17, it says he lifted his eyes to heaven and began to pray. He prayed, opened eyes, looking up, standing up and looking up. Some of you may prefer to, to kneel or whatever it may be. Whatever it is, it helps you focus uh, more consistently. Do that. Um, number three, turning your mind to prayer in quiet moments during the day. Just being, being intentional. Maybe turn the radio off on your commute for a specific time of prayer, just to spend that time in prayer with the Lord. But make, make the habit of, of taking those quiet moments with the Lord. Number four, be intentional when you pray before meals. If you pray before meals, you're going to have usually at least three opportunities to have prayer uh, a day, often with other people. And I'd encourage you not to let that become a formula where you just pray the same thing over your food. But take time, especially with your kids. It's a great opportunity that's built into your day to train your children in how to pray. And what, we're, what are we praying for? We're not praying for the food. We're thanking God for providing the food, right? Um, and, and something that we've done from time to time that's been really fun is we'll, we'll have those missionary prayer cards on our fridge, and we'll, we'll, either, we'll either go get one or let the kids pick one at dinner time, and we'll talk about that missionary and pray for that missionary in conjunction with our meal. Uh, you could do that with any number of things that you want to be praying about, but it's a way to, to help your family see, and for you, to have a more substantial prayer at that time when the family's all gathered together, rather than just a quick, short, formulaic prayer. Number five, be intentional in how and when you pray with your wife and kids. Be intentional with your wife and kids. If you pray with them before bed, really resist the urge to get into a, just a quick formulate prayer, but pray things for them that your kids are listening to you. They, they ought to know how to pray because they've heard Dad pray. Right? They ought to know how to pray in a biblical way. It ought to come natural to them over time as they hear you pray. Your wife ought to hear you pray. She ought to know the cadence of your prayer and how you speak to God. It ought to be a regular thing for her because you pray with her as a regular part of your life. Number six, pray for the topics we're commanded to pray for. I mentioned that earlier. Thinking through the different categories of prayer, making sure that they're a part of your life. Uh, number seven, consider a regular or occasional prayer walk as a re- part of your routine. One of my favorite things to do when I, when I really want to get away and pray an extended, for an extended period of time is to take a walk um, and just get out and pray. And... Um, my wife's always like, you're praying in your head when you do that, right? People are just going to think you're nuts. And I'm like, yeah, mostly, <laughs> largely. But, but I don't really care if they think I'm nuts. Uh, but for me, the movement of walking helps me focus. For other people, it just maybe that distracts you and it's a terrible idea, and that's fine. Do whatever works for you. But for me, 
that just gets me out of my regular routine and I get away with, with the Lord. And then uh, lastly, pray with other believers when you gather together. When you have people over for dinner, when you're with people from the church and things come up, or you're standing there in the foyer at church talking and someone begins to share something, you realize, man, they're having a rough time. Don't say, I'll pray for you. Say, let's pray. And just stop and pray with them. Just get in a regular habit of, of praying with them. Well, it's 7 o'clock. I just want to give you two resources that if you're looking for things to kind of help you pray better. One is the Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision is a, a collection of prayers of the Puritans. Obviously, it's not the Scripture um, at all, but it is. there's some great examples of these types of prayers, praying with a high view of God, a reverence for God, and how to ask for things in a way that's a, that, that handles the transcendence and the eminence of God together. That's a, it's a great resource for you. It's in our bookstore. The other one is if you're looking for something to kind of help you get out of the rut that you've been in in prayer, the ACTS model of prayer can be helpful. Um, ACTS stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Just to kind of make sure you're praying about some things that maybe you're not, you're leaving out. You're starting with that high view of God and reverence for God and confession of sin. And then giving thanks to God. Not only asking for things, but giving thanks to God. And then ending with asking for the request. Those are some things that have helped me and hopefully they'll be helpful to you. Well... I know there's a lot more we could say about prayer, and, and um, I'm sure we will in the, in the weeks to come. But let me pray for you now, and we'll let you go to work. Lord God, it is a, a blessing to have such a treasure as your word. And even contained in that, we get to hear what it sounds like when, when the second person of the Trinity prays. When Jesus prays, we get to, to hear his instruction on, on prayer and to to hear his heart in prayer as we read these words, and we're grateful for that, and pray that you would use that by the power of your Spirit to convict us to be men of prayer, to be men who are regularly turning our thoughts to you, opening our mouths to pray for you and to pray for to pray to you and to pray for others. God, help us to to capture the the tension between the, your transcendence and your imminence. May it be clear in the way we pray to you and approach you. But thank you that we can come to you with, with confidence and with joy that you'll accept us as your children and that you desire for us to come. We're so thankful for that invitation and that ability to know you on that personal level. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.